Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant, and in this episode, I'm joined by an acclaimed author whose celebrated novel, Brooklyn, has recently been turned into an Oscar-nominated film. He's come to the Penguin Studio to tell us how he came to pen the novel, and he's brought along a number of objects that shaped his work and that take us behind the scenes of his writing process. He's Colm Tobin. Colm, welcome. Thank you. Colm, some authors hate adaptations of their books on screen. What was your first reaction on watching the film of Brooklyn? What happens is that the emotion comes back to you raw. It's as though you're back in the tentative moments when you were thinking about the book. And you're in that state of confusion where you think, I could almost start the book again, or I could write a book like it, or I'm, or I'm back somewhere. But it's quite sharp. I mean, it's quite a serious emotion. And the thing is, you can't share it with anyone. No one knows how tentative this was at one point, how it was nothing, how then it was something small, how then it was a single sentence. No one else knows that except you. And what you're getting back is all that feeling that was there at the beginning of the process. It's a strange idea. And is that a good feeling overall or is it... In this case, the adaptation is, is very intelligent and tactful, clever and right. So that I'm watching something with also a sort of technical admiration over, OK, I know what you're doing there. You took that out for a good reason. I can see what's coming. And that Nick Hornby had, in a way, found a core story. He had searched in the book to find something that would work as a single-strand narrative, mm -hmm. leaving out side characters, side moments. And also, the funniest part is he added an ending that isn't in the book. And I've seen the film about five times now, and it's that ending that really brings tears to my eyes. I find the, his ending very moving. You know, it's an ending that I was leaving for the reader to imagine. Mm -hmm. And there it is in the film. I can see why it's there. And that's what really gets me every time. Nick's ending that I didn't write, that he wrote. So are you actually saying that you think Nick Hornby did you a good um, service? You here? know, it's a million dollar decision where I have it, the novel end in a, a moment that's almost abrupt, mm -hmm. where the reader has to put the book down, think, ooh. I have to imagine what she did next. But I noticed, because I looked it up on Amazon one day, that a lot of readers find their ending abrupt. And it's sort of meant to be abrupt, but that's not good enough if you're making a movie where you have to really worry about this. And what Nick did was he went for the big, warm, wonderful ending that's going to really lift your heart. I'm too mean to do that, really, in a novel. But also in a novel, sometimes you can't do that. It looks cheesy, it looks schmaltzy. In a film, the entire audience is longing for this. And if you don't give it to them, they really will feel cheated. Certainly, I'd, I would feel cheated as a member of the audience if this doesn't happen. So was there any point where you wanted to write the screenplay or were asked to do it? The problem with film is that other people need to be involved. Writing a novel, you can do it on your own. Yeah. And suddenly work that you matters to you, that you composed, someone wants to intervene and interfere and that might be very difficult. I thought if I, if I asked somebody else to do it, and I particularly wanted Nick to do it, it, it wasn't his initial emotion mm -hmm. that gave rise to the book. So he might be able to um, be quite incisive uh, with the book in a way that I might be more protective. OK, so Brooklyn is set in the 1950s and tells a story of Eilish Lacey, a young girl from Ireland who leaves everything behind for a new life in New York. 
Her homesickness eventually gives way to happiness, only for her American adventure to be thrown into jeopardy when tragedy brings her back home. So let's meet Eilish, who is about to be sold the American dream in an extract from the audiobook of Brooklyn, read by Neve Cusack. In the United States, he said, there would be plenty of work for someone like you, and with good pay. She thought of going to England, her mother said. But the boys said to wait that it wasn't the best time there, and she might only get factory work. In Brooklyn, where my parish is, there would be office work for someone who was hard-working and educated and honest. It's very far away, though, her mother said. That's the only thing. Parts of Brooklyn, Father Flood replied, are just like Ireland. They're full of Irish. He crossed his legs and sipped his tea from the china cup and said nothing for a while. The silence that descended made it clear to Eilish what the others were thinking. She looked across at her mother, who deliberately, it seemed to her, did not return her glance, but kept her gaze fixed on the floor. Rose, normally so good at moving the conversation along if they had a visitor, also said nothing. She twisted her ring and then her bracelet. It would be a great opportunity, especially if you were young, Father Flood said finally. It might be very dangerous, her mother said, her eyes still fixed on the floor. Not in my parish, Father Flood said. It's full of lovely people. A lot of life centres round the parish, even more than in Ireland. And there's work for anyone who's willing to work. Eilish felt like a child when the doctor would come to the house, her mother listening with cowed respect. It was Rose's silence that was new to her. She looked at her now, wanting her sister to ask a question or make a comment. But Rose appeared to be in a sort of dream. As Eilish watched her, it struck her that she had never seen Rose look so beautiful. And then it occurred to her that she was already feeling that she would need to remember this room, her sister, this scene, as though from a distance. In the silence that had lingered, she realised it had somehow been tacitly arranged that Eilish would go to America. Colm, where did Eilish's story come from? After my father died, people came to the house a lot. People would just casually call in and they'd have a cup of tea and then they'd go. One evening a woman came and she talked all about her daughter who was in Brooklyn. She maybe even had a letter from her, but I think it was after the woman left and often this was the most interesting part of the evening when someone would leave and they would talk about them. And someone said, you know, that woman's daughter who went to Brooklyn, she came home once and she didn't tell them she got married in Brooklyn. And I remember my mother loved the story. She said, the man in Brooklyn was so mad about her, he wouldn't let her go home until she got married. But she couldn't tell them because if she told them, then they would know that she was going back forever. Yeah. But all I had was that. I mean, I didn't have anything else. I didn't know who she married in America. I didn't know what time of the year she came back. I had no, for example, the romance she has when she comes home is completely invented. It wasn't as, you know, there, there was no more to the story than that. But I was heartened by the Henry James said that he loved half a story. And if people tried to tell him a whole story, he always tried to stop them to say, no, no, please don't tell me the second half of that story. I just, and you've told me enough. And I, in a way, I had enough. And it stayed in my mind for all the years. Your first object is a picture of Enniscorthy. It's a town in Ireland where you grew up, and Eilish's hometown in Brooklyn. 
What can you see in that picture? Well, you can see the beautiful light that comes, you know, it's 10 miles from the sea and the, with the mountains, the Blackstairs Mountains in the background. Mm-hmm. And the main thing you can see is the spire of Pugin's Cathedral. And um, that gives you a sense, Pugin being the main church architect of the mid-19th century, that there was enough money around, there were enough merchants around, even in the middle of the Irish famine, to build a beautiful cathedral with stenciled Pugin work inside and all that neo-Gothic work to represent, in a way, the re-emergence or the emergence of Catholic power in Ireland. And so you can you can see that spire as being the thing that dominated. And of course, I, I was an altar boy in that church and it was the time when, I'm not making this up, at 20 to the hour uh, on a Sunday, an altar boy would go right up into the spire and literally, you know, manually ring a 20 to bell that wasn't the normal bell, which, yeah. was, which, which was mechanised. And you would ring a 20 to bell for people in the town to know it's 20 minutes now to the hour. If you're not on your way to mass, you should be. <laughs> but be. that would include a 20 to 7 in the morning, a 20 to 8 in the morning, 20 to 9 in the morning, 20 to 10. So I, I spent time right up in that spire with, with various views of the river, the River Slaney going down towards Wexford and various views of the town itself. So I... Um, so, so I sort of know that that how you would photograph that town or how that's what that space looks like from on high, and also uniquely your memories of growing up there, which obviously informed the writing of Brooklyn. But when John Crowley directed the film of Brooklyn, you requested that the scenes would be shot in the places where you've set it. Yeah, John. I mean, John's a good listener, and uh, I didn't really know he was paying any attention to me. I just more or less wanted him to go down and look at it. But of course, if it didn't work, it wouldn't work. You know, in other words, if there were big neon signs that were new or some telecommunication spire. Uh But he found a part of the town that he could film. And I think he found also that people in the town, people who run the town were going to be really helpful because he really wanted this to happen. So yeah, it was shot in the town. Then there was an amazing night um, at the end of October where they actually showed the film. There were two screenings on a given night in the town. I imagined it because I walked through those streets throughout my childhood in the town. It was it was written, I wrote about it. It was filmed in the town and now people in the town were going walking through those very streets to see the film that had been captured of the town. So it was an interesting experience. There was a lot. Of, we stayed up very late that night, I have to say, in the, in the hotel, all sitting around drinking and talking. It was one of those funny, memorable nights. And you have a house near Enniscorthy now, how much of Brooklyn was actually written there? A good lot of it there. It made a difference building the house because that's where we spent the summers. My father was a teacher, which meant that we had longer holidays than other people. And so that was freedom. I couldn't believe that I could go back there. Just walking down from the house to the beach, to the strand, as they call it, the smells, the smell of clover, the smell of mown hay, and then just the first view um, as, you, as you turn into the lane of, of the sea. All of that just brought things back very vividly to me. And this, this house that you built facing out over the sea is, is where Aish and Jim spend the afternoon at the beach. So what you have written is exactly where the thing happens. Yeah, they go down to that very place when she comes back from Brooklyn that I was walking in, uh, probably even the days I was writing it. When they go into the village, it's the same village. Yeah, so all, all of that world is sort of real. Okay, let's dip back into the audiobook of Brooklyn as Adish prepares to leave Enniscorthy and everything that is familiar to her. One day, 
when a neighbour called and sat in the kitchen with them having tea. Ailish realised that her mother and Rose were doing everything to hide their feelings. The neighbour, almost casually, as a way of making conversation, said, You'll miss her when she's gone, I'd say. Oh, it'll kill me when she goes, her mother said. Her face wore a dark, strained look that Ailish had not seen since the months after their father died. Then, in the moments that followed, the neighbour appearing to have been taken aback by her mother's tone, her mother's expression became almost darker, and she had to stand up and walk quietly out of the room. It was clear to Ailish that she was going to cry. Ailish was so surprised that, instead of following her mother into the hallway or the dining room, she made small talk with their neighbour, hoping her mother would soon return and they could resume what had seemed like an ordinary conversation. Even when she woke in the night and thought about it, she did not allow herself to conclude that she did not want to go. Instead, she went over all the arrangements and worried about carrying two suitcases with all her clothes without any help, and making sure that she did not lose the handbag that Rose had given her, where she would keep her passport, and the addresses in Brooklyn where she would live and work, and Father Flood's address in case he did not turn up to meet her as he had promised to do, and money and her makeup bag, and an overcoat maybe to be carried over her arm, although perhaps she would wear it, she thought, unless it was too hot. And it still might be hot in late September, she had been warned. She had already packed one case and hoped, as she went over its contents in her mind, that she would not have to open it again. It struck her on one of those nights as she lay awake that the next time she would open that suitcase it would be in a different room, in a different country. And then the thought came unbidden into her mind that she would be happier if it were opened by another person who could keep the clothes and shoes and wear them every day. She would prefer to stay at home, sleep in this room, live in this house, do without the clothes and shoes. The arrangements being made, all the bustle and talk would be better if they were for someone else, she thought. Someone like her, someone the same age and size, who maybe even looked the same as she did. As long as she, the person who was thinking now, could wake in this bed every morning and move as the day went on in these familiar streets and come home to the kitchen, to her mother and Rose. I'm so struck by... This sense of longing that, you know, obviously suffuses Karen Blixen, Isaac Dinesen's work throughout, in the same way that Ennis Gorthy has a long legacy of emigration and Asia's brothers have already left home to work in England and every summer emigrants come back from New York decked out in sunglasses and glamorous American clothes, pockets stuffed full of dollars. So what sort of effect does this have on a town? I think it's a secret history of the town in a way that something like independence didn't matter in the same sort of way. From the 1840s onwards, every family lost people to immigration and it became a natural part of the thing where you would ask about somebody and they would say, oh, her brother, but no, he went to Australia. And somebody, Did he ever come back? No, I don't think he ever came back. I remember one Sunday, there was a man back from Australia and he, then he was on the beach with us and he went off on his own. He went up the hill and some, he was on his own up the hill and someone said, well, what's he doing on his own? And someone said, ah... I don't think he'll be home again. So he's just going up to be on his own for the afternoon just so he can 
remember the place, you know, and there was that sort of... And then, of course, the real fun part would be where people would come home with English accents, where... Um, you know, we went one place and there were there were people we knew and then their cousins came from England. Hey, they were seemed they seemed bigger, healthier and stronger than we were. <laughs> but they all had English accents and of course Traitors. Irish names with English accents and they were talking all about England and um I mean next door there was a woman and her two sisters would come. One was living in England, the other woman coming from America. She worked as a housekeeper for people in Connecticut. But my mother said that those people were fabulously wealthy and they gave her their clothes, which again doesn't seem like a great deal now, but she would bring home a suitcase of them. And people would go to see them, these these American clothes with all the bright colours. And she talked incessantly about the size of things. No matter what happened, it was bigger in America. And no one pointed out to her that she was a housekeeper, you know, for people. (laughs) That that was really, she was basically their maid. And no, she she didn't seem like that or feel like that. She seemed like a million dollars when she arrived home. She had an absolute authority on the street. Completely entitled. And the poor sister who came back home from England had none of that at all. So America was still the dream country where you could, if you ever came home, you talk big talk. I remember somebody who'd who'd gone on an exchange year when I was 12 who came back and said, there are 24 different types of donuts in New York City. And I said, no, they're not. There's only two in Swaziland. They said, there are 24 in New York. There you go. So your next object takes us across the Atlantic and is... Henry James's novella, Washington Square. How has this influenced your writing, Mr Um, Tobin? I became interested in that way that James presented Catherine Sloper in Washington Square. Catherine Sloper is the dull daughter of Dr Sloper, who thinks his daughter is really dull and not much worthy of his attention until she falls unsuitably in love with a man he considers to be a fortune hunter. And he bans the marriage Mm -hmm. without understanding just how deep her feelings are, which the reader slowly begins to see that this is what she wants, that she knows this man in all his flaws, but she wants him. And she doesn't want anything else. And going to Europe with her father won't matter. Her father's contempt won't matter. Her, no matter what will happen, this is what she wants. And um, I was interested in that idea of a sort of submerged heroine, which you also get in, say, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park with Fanny Price, a girl who doesn't think about her the effect she has on a room because she has no effect on a room. Yeah. But she's feeling deeply all the time about someone or other or something or other. And the reader slowly begins to enter into her spirit. Her meek spirit is only meek when you watch her because she doesn't watch herself. But when you know her, her spirit is stubborn. So I was interested in that idea of a heroine who was like this, um, very much the second sister in a family. Uh, everyone in Brooklyn really likes Eilish. Everywhere she goes, people do things for her. They're always helping her. She does nothing to deserve this. It's not as though she seeks their help or has any sense that she attracts light. She feels she attracts shadow. So therefore, what's happening in her mind should be really become interesting for the reader where the reader begins to know just how deep her feelings run and how deep then the conflicts within her will be. So that was the idea, which I really took, I suppose, from certain 19th century novels and prime among them would have been Washington Square. Uh-huh. So 
Eilish quickly realises that Brooklyn is very different to Ellis Gordy. So let's hear another extract from Brooklyn as Eilish heads to work at a department store. She liked the morning air and the quietness of these few leafy streets. Streets that had shops only on the corners. Streets where people lived, where there were three or four apartments in each house and where she passed women accompanying their children to school as she went to work. As she walked along, however, she knew she was getting close to the real world, which had wider streets and more traffic. Once she arrived at Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn began to feel like a strange place to her, with so many gaps between buildings and so many derelict buildings. And then, suddenly, when she arrived at Fulton Street, there would be so many people crowding to cross the street, and in such dense clusters that on the first morning she thought a fight had broken out or someone was injured and they had gathered to get a good view. Most mornings she stood back for a minute or two, waiting for the crowds to disperse. In Bartocci's, she had to clock in, which was easy, and then go to her locker in the women's room downstairs and change into the blue uniform that girls on the shop floor had to wear. She was there most mornings before most of the other girls arrived. Some of them often did not appear until the last second. Miss Fortini, who was the supervisor, disapproved of this, Ailish knew. On her first day, Father Flood had taken her to the main office and she had had an interview with Elisabetta Bartocci, the daughter of the owner, who she thought was the most perfectly dressed woman she had ever seen. She wrote to her mother and Rose about Miss Bartocci's flaring red costume and white plain blouse, her red high-heeled shoes, her hair, which was shiny, black and perfect. Her lipstick was bright red, and her eyes were the blackest Ailish had ever seen. Brooklyn changes every day, Miss Bartocci said as Father Flood nodded. New people arrive, and they could be Jewish or Irish or Polish or even colored. Our old customers are moving out to Long Island, and we can't follow them, so we need new customers every week. We treat everyone the same. We welcome every single person who comes into this store. They all have money to spend. We keep our prices low and our manners high. If people like it here, they'll come back. You treat the customer like a new friend. Is that a deal? Elish nodded. You give them a big Irish smile. America was obviously seen as the land of possibility with people coming from all over the world heading there in search of a better life. Whole parts of New York were Irish at that time, weren't they? Oh, yeah. You notice it in the churches. You see, there's a plaque to Father Joseph O'Leary or, <laughs> you know, or, or, or please pray for Mary Murphy. All the Irish immigrants who had gone to live in Brooklyn, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s. I have a friend who... Bob Sullivan, and he lives in Cobble Hill and Clinton Street, which is the street I really set the boarding house in. And he said that um, he, had, he has a neighbour and that house was an Irish boarding house into the 70s. But I was sort of using his house and the whole idea of what being a lodger, you know, and, and, and staying where they would all eat together in the evening. And uh, so I thought that would provide sort of light relief in the book when she has to go back each time and they're, they, they're banned from talking about religion. They're banned from talking about politics. So, of course, they talk about style, exactly what my aunts talked about to my mother about, you know, some winter coat they almost bought would become the biggest <laughs> subject. Was it green? Green now, how was it? And what, you know, and they would just go for hours on the subject of that winter coat that they didn't buy, of course, in the <laughs> end. 
So you're obviously fascinated about immigrants making new lives for themselves and writing their own stories from scratch. Is this something that compels you to do as a writer? Um, I suppose that no matter what you're doing as a writer, you're sort of displaced in some way or other. You've moved out of your own circle in order to watch it more carefully or dramatise it more intensely. And, and that you can never be fully part of a room. There's something going on. You know, people are really having a good time and you suddenly find yourself watching somebody. And um, that process of watching, I suppose, is necessary. For, I mean, that business of noticing and what Henry James called, you know, a writer is someone on whom nothing is lost. So when everybody else is actually involved in something, you're involved in watching it or watching them. You see, just what, way. What, what you've described about these... These ladies sitting in the corner describing this coat that yeah. they never bought. I want to go right in there and find out what they look like and all of yeah, that. Yeah, I'm the little boy, you know, who just sneaked into the room when they weren't looking and I'm sitting there really quietly listening as they talk on and on. And I know there's something else they're all thinking about because I've been listening to another conversation, but they're not talking about what they need to talk about. Mm-hmm. They've decided to move on to the subject of blouses. <laughs> Your next object is the desk that now sits in your office in Dublin. The story of the desk, please, sir. Well, I was in New York for a year, which is the beginning of my sort of time where I started to watch emigration and feel the feelings and just get a sense of New York. I I got a fellowship at New York Public Library, the Cullman Centre, But I, I got an apartment that was unfurnished. It was the only thing they could find for me was unfurnished. Well, the fun of, um, I mean, America's not like us, you know. I mean, just dialing 1-800-MATTRESS and a mattress, I mean, a few, <laughs> three Cubans arriving the next day early, yeah. you know. And it was, I didn't even have a cell phone. I did it from a phone on the street. I just gave her a credit card number and they, they, they put together a bed for me the next morning. And so too with the furniture. They just say, well, when do you want it delivered? I say, well, when? Well, we could deliver it now. I say, well, you mean within an hour? I said, yes, we have it in the warehouse. We could just bring it to you. And so within a, within a day you or two furnished. days, I had furnished a house <laughs> and I bought two things that I couldn't be without. One was a beautiful rocking chair and the other was a long table which had two sort of leaves that you could take off you put lamps on it and be really untidy with it. Uh-huh. And uh, I found someone at the end who told me you can, you can actually ship things out of America really cheaply as long as you're not in any hurry to, you know, home. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I went to an agent and a man came and wrapped these two things up. About two months later, they arrived in Dublin and I was a sort of miracle bringing something home from America. And to this day, pe- people will say, especially at the rocking chair, but also with the table, yeah. where did you get that? As though... Because it's the sort of thing you couldn't really get in Dublin. The, the table is narrow as well as being long and it has, a, it has a drawer. I said, oh, I brought that back from America. And it sounds like the most glamorous thing you could do, you know, to bring back furniture from America. It was just a table and, and, and a chair. But nonetheless, they're, of they're in the house in Dublin from my first American sojourn. And are they covered in books and lamps? Yeah, I'm really untidy and um, I can never find anything. But I work in longhand, so all I need to do is really create a bit of space for a notebook and then just take out a pen 
and then I'm fine. Then, then, then I'm, you know, just put my head down. And I mean, there was a photograph of, of the thing once somewhere and Alan Bennett complained about it and said, A, that the, that the mantelpiece looked ugly to him. He's, I think he's a connoisseur of that, that sort of thing, mantelpieces. And also, how could you write in a room full of books? Well, the answer, Alan, is that you look down, you don't look up. Exactly. And um, you don't know where you are and you're looking at the, at the words and it doesn't really matter what's around you, but it just happens to be the table I brought back from America, which actually sort of means something to me. Talisman of your success. Yeah, so, yeah. Alan Ben, if you're listening to this, get down, boy. <laughs> you spent much of your life coming and going from Ireland, living abroad and teaching in America. How far did your experiences feed into your descriptions of Edith's loneliness when she first arrives in Brooklyn? It was more my first going to boarding school that idea that I will never again have a normal life, you know, for the whole year at home in my own room and being on a dormitory Benched. and wanting to, anything to be back in my bed, in my room that I had yeah. never thought about before that I'd taken for granted. So that was really the feeling of homesickness I was using when she's very intensely homesick. Mm-hmm. And it was that made me feel, imagine if then someone told me, no, you're, you're here and you're here for good and you're never, never going back. You're never going back and this is where you're going to live from now on and you better get used to it. That would be a very dramatic feeling. Takram, you're talking about the concept of home. What does that mean for you now? That's ambiguous. You know, in, in a way I can settle anywhere and work, say. But under pressure, I think it would be the Wexford sky and the light over Enniscorthy and the... Um, what I'm working in the book... Brooklyn with is the idea she knows where her home is and I suppose so do I. Let's hear from Edith again in a small room in a guest house in Brooklyn having just received letters from her family in Ireland in an extract from the audiobook of Brooklyn read by Neve Cusack. She lay on the bed with the letters beside her. For the past few weeks she realised she had not really thought of home. The town had come to her in flashing pictures such as the one that had come during the afternoon of the sale, and she had thought, of course, of her mother and Rose, but her own life in Enniscorthy, the life she had lost and would never have again, she had kept out of her mind. Every day she had come back to this small room in this house full of sounds and gone over everything new that had happened. Now, all that seemed like nothing compared to the picture she had of home, of her own room, the house in Friary Street, the food she had eaten there, the clothes she wore. How quiet everything was. All this came to her like a terrible weight, and she felt for a second that she was going to cry. It was as though an ache in her chest was trying to force tears down her cheeks despite her enormous effort to keep them back. She did not give in to whatever it was. She kept thinking attempting to work out what was causing this new feeling that was like despondency, that was like how she felt when her father died and she watched them closing the coffin, the feeling that he would never see the world again and she would never be able to talk to him again. She was nobody here. It was not just that she had no friends and family. It was rather that she was a ghost in this room, in the streets on the way to work, on the shop floor. Nothing meant anything. The rooms in the house on Friary Street belonged to her, she thought. When she moved in them, she was really there. In the town, 
If she walked to the shop or to the vocational school, the air, the light, the ground, it was all solid and part of her, even if she met no one familiar. Nothing here was part of her. It was false, empty, she thought. She closed her eyes and tried to think, as she had done so many times in her life, of something she was looking forward to. But there was nothing. Not the slightest thing, not even Sunday. Nothing maybe except sleep. And she was not even certain she was looking forward to sleep. In any case, she could not sleep yet, since it was not yet nine o'clock. There was nothing she could do. It was as though she had been locked away. Well, from an Irish voice to an Irish song, your next object is... I'm going to attempt to pronounce it. Is it Kazantugan? It's yeah, you're nearly there. It's Kazantugan. It means the twisting of the rope. But it's but it's but it's basically a love song. One of the old men on Christmas Day in Brooklyn, who looks like a broken down old man who's been maybe a builder all his life, and just somebody says that man's a great singer. Now I was basing this on something that there was that there was a singer called Joe Heaney, Joseph O'Haney or Joe Heaney, and he had run out of road, really, and they got him a job in New York. He left Ireland. Mm -hmm. He was quite old. He was in his 50s when he left Ireland and he got a job as a doorman in New York. And he had thousands of songs. So he'd be a doorman in New York when he needed to be and every so often he would perform until he was discovered by John Cage. And John Cage wrote an oratorio for him called Roratorio, based on Finnegan's Wake. And he eventually was taken in by one of the universities in Washington State around Seattle because he had this extraordinary gift. So he became a sort of hero. There was a photograph of him in a pub in Dublin, one of the pubs where traditional music was played. And these Americans came into the pub and said, well, what's he doing? That's Joe, our doorman. And someone said, no, that's Joe Heaney, our great singer. And he sang this song. And so I had the idea in my head that someone like that, like him, who looked broken, nowhere to go on Christmas Day, mm. would be able to uh, sing the song, just, uh, just this sort of trace of an old nobility, of, a, of something that they had in themselves still, despite the fact they had no money, despite the fact that they emigrated, despite the fact that they nowhere to go on Christmas Day, that they would still have something from the west of Ireland they would have brought with them across the Atlantic. Oh. So at a Christmas party in Brooklyn, an Irish man sings a song to Eilish and she's transported straight back to Ireland. Does this music have a parallel effect on you? I think for everybody Irish, the songs and the music are what could grip you, really. I was playing a thing on Australian radio one day and it was an Irish song and a man called into the programme. He wanted to talk to me at the end of the programme. He just said, you know, my mother sang that song. It was in Irish. Mm-hmm. We never knew what it meant and we haven't, I haven't heard it for 50 years. I didn't know anyone else knew it. And you've just played it on the radio. So that idea of people bringing songs with them. I think anybody Irish, but I think it might mean that anybody from anywhere, maybe more than smell, maybe more than even Skyping home, hearing a song that reminds you of childhood. Yeah, and and it you. could be probably a, even a Beatles song for people or, yeah. you know, um, it wouldn't have to be an Irish traditional song. But I think for Irish immigrants, that idea of the music, the music could grip you and bring you instantly back to somewhere that you were even imagining as home. The castle Kalinda Saram and Oignis Nadra 
Erlu ibn quilla glisha ur of yogur of Shin ragur hug shiduum kukun augus kutla. Tan sel nagal ispogal mishan sushin ban. To say this man's name because I'm too choked up to even attempt it. The song is called Kasan Tugoin. It's a love song, really, and that business, must, you know, Gyal McCree, you know, would be the love of my heart, the bright love of my heart. And that's Irlo Linord, who's one of the great singers now in contemporary Ireland. Someone like Irlo would know thousands of songs. It would come from a family of singers. It comes from West Cork. And I really, really wanted him to come into the film and sing the song. To, you know, it would be him and not a voiceover yeah. and not somebody, um, you know, yeah, not, not somebody miming. So he, you can see him coming in with the other old men and then standing up to sing the song in, in the film of Brooklyn. Let's hear what happens in an extract from the audiobook of Brooklyn. When Eilish looked up, the man was signalling to her. He wanted her, it seemed, to come and stand with him. It struck her for a second that he might want her to sing, so she shook her head. But he kept beckoning, and people began to turn and look at her. She felt that she had no choice but to leave her seat and approach him. She could not think why he wanted her. As she came close, she saw how bad his teeth were. He did not greet her or acknowledge her arrival, but closed his eyes and reached his hand towards hers and held it. The skin on the palm of his hand was soft. He gripped her hand tightly and began to move it in a faint, circular motion as he started to sing. His voice was loud and strong and nasal. The Irish he sang in, she thought, must be Connemara Irish because she remembered one teacher from Galway in the Mercy Convent who had that accent. He pronounced each word carefully and slowly, building up a wildness a ferocity in the way he treated the melody. It was only when he came to the chorus, however, that she understood the words. Movien tulam, a story in And he glanced at her proudly, almost possessively, as he sang these lines. All the people in the hall watched him silently. There were five or six verses. He sang the words out with pure innocence and charm so that at times when he closed his eyes, leaning his large frame against the wall, he did not seem like an old man at all. The strength of his voice and the confidence of his performance had taken over. And then each time he came to the chorus, he looked at her, letting the melody become sweeter by slowing down the pace, putting his head down then, managing to suggest even more that he had not merely learned the song, but that he meant it. Elish knew how sorry this man was going to be, and how sorry she would be, when the song had ended, when the last chorus had to be sung, and the singer would have to bow to the crowd and go back to his place, and give way to another singer, as Elish too went back and sat in her chair. Come, your final object is something that's crucial to the, your writing process, and it's what looks to me like a somewhat, shall I say, uncomfortable chair. 
please tell me more. I have a friend who really knows a lot about furniture and he called me and said, look, there are these chairs available. They're designed by the French designer Charlotte Perrion and they're very, very cheap and they won't be cheap in, in six months' time. And if you don't buy them now, you're insane and I'll arrange the shipping. Just, just buy them. And I looked her, her up online, but I looked at the wrong... I looked at the wrong <laughs> chairs. I thought they were sort of bigger <laughs> and nicer. So when they came in a box, I just couldn't believe I had spent money on this. Being French, I think they're for a French dinner party where you, you're very austere and you don't want people to stay long. Too long. And I remember someone saying to me, you know, that I did try them out on some <laughs> friends in Ireland. Those chairs of yours will be the end of us all. And because, uh, you know, if you invite people around in Ireland, they do stay for quite a while Days. in the evening, you know. And, uh, but I've discovered what they're really great for is keeping you on your toes when you're working. They're too narrow and, and they don't really have a full back. So, so they're just like sitting like on a on a box of some sort, but they're so even the harder approach than that. To writing. Yeah, so there's a great sort of Puritan feeling of I'm not in a comfort zone here. I'm pulling up dark and difficult things from my imagination, from my memory. And I have these this chair is going to help me be by God torturing my arms because in the I process. can barely I can barely actually <laughs> sit on it. And you know those masters of the universe office chairs now yeah. people have that are yeah. that are tailored for your back Absolutely. and that you can swing around to see what your minions are doing behind you yeah. very easily. Well, I don't think this would work for prose. I mean, I think the, be- the your sentences are likely to be sharper, uh, better, and more meaningful, and have more resonance. <laughs> the, the the narrower, stranger, more wooden your chair is. So, Charlotte Perrion, thank you. Thank you very much. Just about the best sales pitch for a chair that I've heard <laughs> probably this decade. Brooklyn seems to be a very personal novel for you, set in your hometown, and it's called the, a novel about family and home, mothers and children, and what it means to go away. And in your most recent novel, Nora Webster, you return to Ennis Corthy to tell the story of a mother who's just become a widow. Her husband dies in the same year that your own father passed away. Is it harder, do you think, to write a novel when the subject matter is so close to you? Yes, I think life is a problem for a novelist where it's thin and shapeless. Whereas if you invent something, as Brooklyn is invented, you can then make it into an arc. You can have something, something happen as a consequence of something else. If you're using what actually did happen, that's a thin line. Sometimes it's a dotted line. It's a faint line at other times. And to try and put shape on it requires a great deal of concentration where you have to distill it. I think the difference maybe between a novel and life is the difference between sauce and soup. Yeah. You know, where you just can put loads of ingredients in uh-huh. and that's called life. But to try and distill that down to something that has a flavour or a texture or a special requires a great deal of erasure, uh, thinking things up at night that won't work in the morning. Suddenly things that seemed very interesting won't fit into the pattern because no matter what you do with a novel, you're making pattern. Without pattern, there's no novel. And um, therefore, using memory and using things that are real, it, it requires a great deal more work than so, inventing something. So what is your overwhelming feeling when you finish a novel as deeply personal as Brooklyn? Can you remember what that, what, what that feeling was? Yeah, I mean, you're never sure about endings. So it's not as though you say, I'm closing this today and I will never look at it again. You're always doing revisions, so there's never really a moment. Maybe when the book comes into your hand first and, you, and, you know, it, it's printed. 
but finishing is a curious thing now because you can never be sure you don't need to add a chapter or is there one more thing you need to do there's all you know it's it's never it's not a science by the same token i would gladly sit and talk to you for the next 15 hours but we have to stop thank you very much thank you very much thank you Colm Tobin's latest novel is Nora Webster. Widowed at 40, Nora's living in a small town looking after her four children, trying to rebuild her life while she grieves for her dead husband, Morris. A sound came again, louder. She thought that maybe she should go next door and see if the O'Connors were there and if Tom would come in with her to see what the noise upstairs was. She made sure that the front door was locked. She checked the back door too. There was silence for a while, but it was broken as the noise came again and louder, of furniture being pulled across the floor. She went quickly up the stairs, calling out, Who is it? Who's there? Her bedroom door was closed. She usually left it open when she was not inside. She listened again. A sound came. Suddenly she winced in pain and lifted her hand up to look. She had driven the fingernails in so hard that there was blood on the palm of her hand. When she heard the noise now, it was more like a voice. She opened the door of the bedroom. Morris, she called out. He was sitting in the rocking chair by the window, facing her. Morris, she whispered. He was wearing the sports coat with green and blue flecks that they had bought in fungus and gory, and grey slacks, and a grey shirt, and a grey tie. He smiled for a moment as she pushed the door closed with her back. He was like he had been before he got sick. Morris, can you speak? Nora Webster by Colm Tabeen is available now on iTunes and Audible.